Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Chapter 35 of the book of Ezekiel. Well, we're nearly there. We'll get to the dry bones next week if we get through enough stuff tonight. 35 and 36 really go together because you're going to see God reference Mount Seir and then the mountains of Israel. And you're going to see them held in contrast. One of the really interesting aspects of this particular prophecy is that God speaks directly to the land. He addresses the land directly and even attributes some qualities to the land. And so he's going to address Mount Seir and then he's going to address the mountains of Israel. Now, Seir is really interesting. Mount Seir is Edom's geographical name. That's a mountain range east of the Wadi Arabah, south of the Dead Sea. So this was the mountainous homeland where the Edomites lived. Now, one of the most consistent enemies of Israel all the way through the Old Testament is the Edomites. Where do the Edomites come from? They come from Esau. So when you contrast chapter 35 and chapter 36, you see the outgrowth of the concept of God saying, Back when the two children were in the womb, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. It's going to come out in geographical locale now, where God is going to say terrible things about Mount Seir, about Edom. And then he's going to turn around and say very blessed things to Israel. What's the difference between them? They've both rebelled. They've both done things that have made God angry, that have brought about God's wrath and ire, and yet one of those two people God has chosen, God has elected, and so despite their rebellion, God's going to ultimately say in chapter 36, I'm not going to save you or restore you for your sake. You didn't add anything to it. I'm going to do all this because I'm jealous for my name. I'm going to do this because the very fact that you are my people and you're driven out of your land, the lands where you now are residing are saying, but these are the people of Yahweh and they're out of their land. How did that happen? And God said, the very fact that you are there gives them a chance to mock, gives them an opportunity to say, where is God in all this? And he said, so to protect my own reputation, to protect my own name, I'm going to bring you back to the land. But it's real important that you know that you had nothing to do with it. Well, the applications are obvious. That God, once he lays his everlasting love, once he lays his electing grace on somebody, that there's really nothing they can do that can destroy that relationship. God is going to love them anyway. God is going to redeem them anyway. But God is, just like he's doing here with Israel, God is going to correct them. God is going to take them through the difficulties of this life that are going to steer them back to himself. But he's not going to lose them. 
Meanwhile, there are people who are just as guilty who have done the same things, and yet God is going to hold them utterly accountable for the things that they've done. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is the Jacob and Esau difference. Last night at men's group was one of the questions that Kellen, I think, asked. And we went back to the beginning of the Jacob and Esau thing out of the book of Romans that the two children are in a womb having done neither good or evil and yet God decided between the two. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And you're going to see that again tonight. It's going to start with Esau, with Mount Edom, with the descendants of Esau and God pronouncing woe and wrath to them and then he's going to turn to Israel and say, not for your sake, not for anything you've done, but for my own namesake and for the promises I made to your forefathers, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to bring you back to your land, and we're going to see all these magnificent promises. So I think we're ready to start in chapter 35. Everybody there? Yes. Chapter 35 begins, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, Set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. And say to it, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste to your cities, and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the capital L-O-R-D. I am the Lord, the sovereign God. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed. Now, there's a little bit of wordplay in this that I just kind of don't want you to miss because God's doing it. God's constructing the wordplay, and I find it interesting that even as God is cursing Mount Seir, he takes the time to use language that is interesting and kind of amusing. For instance, the Hebrew word dom is the word for blood. The word for edom means red. And so Edom, the red, are going to be covered in bloodshed, Dom, and God says so. So bloodshed's going to be their ultimate end. God has determined that bloodshed is going to pursue them. Verse 7, and I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountains with its slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord because you have said, okay, here's why God is angry at them. Not only because of the everlasting enmity that they've had against Israel, but then they celebrated the fact that Israel fell. They celebrated that the northern kingdom was taken out of their land into the Assyrian captivity. And now as God is moving Judah and the southern kingdom out and Jerusalem has fallen, the Edomites have been celebrating that fact. And they 
assume that because the Israelites are out of their land, that now they can occupy that land, because it's a good land. Remember, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they say, verse 10, because you have said, these two nations, these two lands will be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Wow, I will make myself known among my people, the Israelites, by how I'm judging you because you're enemy of my people. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all of your reviling, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate. They are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me, and I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. And you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate. So I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now of that particular section, Jameson, Faustin, Brown, take the time to say that Mount Seir which is also known as Adumia in Genesis 36.9, he singled them out as badly preeminent because of their bitterness against God's people to represent, they claim, all of the enemies everywhere and in all ages. So he sees in this chapter, it's not a he, it's three he's, but they see in this chapter God speaking against Mount Seir in such a generalized way that it's a warning to all nations in their anti-Israel, anti-Judah bias that you can apply what God is saying here, that because you rejoiced over the desolation of Israel, I'm going to make you desolate too, because as God now pours out the blessings on Israel in chapter 36, it's going to become really, really obvious that he's speaking not only immediately in the way he's going to bring Judah back at the end of the 70 years, but he's also speaking eschatologically. He's also speaking of the ultimate end of Israel. And if we can get through this chapter quickly enough, we're going to also go look at Zechariah, and we're going to see the same promises made in that eschatological framework where God is going to predict through Zechariah the exact things that we're seeing here that are predicted in Ezekiel, the restoration of Israel and how the nations that came to fight against Israel are ultimately going to have to be obedient to Israel. So that's the game plan. That's where we're headed. Chapter 36, then. This is where he starts talking blessings to Israel. And also, please, as we're doing this tonight, hang on to this for next week, because as we began tonight, Gladys said, when are we going to get to the Valley of Dry Bones? And I said, that's next week if we get through this. Don't forget that the Valley of Dry Bones 
and the predictions that God makes in his explanation of the vision and how he's going to raise up all Israel out of their graves and bring them back to their land, it's on the back of these promises we're reading tonight. So there's going to be all these promises of restoration of Israel, and then God's going to get into the object lesson of raising up the dry bones. So I don't think you can disconnect those two things because they are going to culminate in the two sticks, Ephraim and Judah. And they're going to be one in your hand, and I'm going to bring them all back to their land. And so this is all part of one grand prophecy to Israel in contrast (laughs) to how God has predicted woe and bloodshed and continual woe and destruction for Mount Seir and Edom and the nations that have come up against Israel. So that's the overarching vision. Don't, don't lose that. And next week I'm going to say the same thing again just so that we remember that context. And then the week after that I'll say it just to confuse you all. So. Chapter 36, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because the enemy has spoken against you, saying, Aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession, therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, For good cause they have made you desolate. Now notice what he just said. That's really, really interesting. For good cause these nations that God used to drive the Israelites out of their nation, out of their land, that it was just that God did that to them, that he punished them that way, that he punished the Israelites that way. It was completely just that he did that, and it was for good cause. But because they are the people of God, the nations that did that to them, that are gloating over it, God is going to punish them because ultimately the Israelites are still the people of God, despite being punished by the very nations who came down on Israel and drove them out, who God is going to punish when he restores Israel. That's a really, really sovereign God who's really, really in control of nations. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good cause they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side that you should become a possession of the rest of the nations. And you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, to the desolate wastes and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy, I have spoken against the rest of the nations And against all Edom. See how he combined Edom and the nations. That's why the Fawcett Brown commentary says that the reference to Mount Seir is larger than just Edom. It's for the surrounding nations and the nations that have come up against Israel. My jealousy, surely in the fire of my jealousy, I've spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel 
and say to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Really interesting. Okay, so God used those nations to drive the Israelites out of their own land. Having driven them out of their land, they're now residing among the Gentile nations, and the Gentile nations are making fun of them, are mocking them, are deriding them, and that makes God jealous because those are his people. And his name, he's going to say in a moment, deserves a defense against those people for mocking those people who belong to me. God doesn't think like we do. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. In other words, what they've said about you, I'm going to put on them. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. In other words, I have made you a land of milk and honey, but the food of the plants that come out of your ground are not going to be food for those nations it's going to be food for Israel. That's my plan. That's my intention. For behold, verse 9, for behold, I am for you. So what did we read in the last chapter? Mount Seir, I am against you. When speaking to Israel, behold, I am for you. And I keep stressing, they're both guilty. They're both guilty. There's no, there's no good people in this whole scenario. There's no good nation here. One nation was bad enough they got driven out of their land. The other was bad enough that they were used by God to drive the people out of their land. And yet God says, I'm against you, I'm for you. That's election. It's written all through the Bible. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be cultivated and sown. And I will multiply men on you. He's still talking to the land, to the mountain of Israel. I will multiply men on you. All the houses of Israel, all of it, and the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly, and I will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men then specifically, my people Israel, to walk on you and to possess you so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men and have bereaved your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men. And no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear the insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. 
You get the idea? He's speaking to the land, and he's saying, even though the people I've given you to are out of the land, you still belong to them. And the food you raise up and the animals you raise up are going to belong to them. And one day I'm going to repopulate you with people. But it's not going to be the people from Mount Seir. It's not going to be the Gentiles. It's not going to be the enemies of Israel. It's going to be the men of Israel. And then I'm going to bring back children. And then I'm going to establish them in the land of Israel. How many times, for those of you who are keeping the scorecard, how many times so far as we've worked our way through the Old Testament have you seen God say this exact thing? I'm going to restore Israel. He just keeps saying it and saying it and saying it. All of Israel. All of Israel. Yeah, he said it right here. All of them. Then verse 16. He's going to explain why he's doing this. And it's not for sake of them. Remember, they're bad. They're so bad they got driven out of their land. But God's going to restore the land to Israel. And why is he doing that? Here is one of the great examples of the faithfulness of God. That once God has put his word forward, that he's going to be faithful to his word, and that should give us a great deal of confidence. That God who makes promises keeps those promises because he's jealous for his word to perform it. Starting at verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, When the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations, where they went, those are the very nations where God sent them, where God drove them. But when they came to the nations where they were sent, they profaned my holy name. Okay, how did they profane your holy name? Because it was said of them... It was said about them by those other nations. These are the people of Yahweh, the people of the Lord, and yet they have come out of his land. So God says, I'm judging you because you're rightly judged. But while I'm judging you and sending you into foreign lands, the people of the foreign lands have seen you in the foreign lands and have said, but these are the people of Yahweh and they've been driven out of their land. So God, who is jealous for his own name and his own reputation, says the very fact that you are there in that land profaned my name, my reputation. So I'm going to do all this for you, not because of you, but because of me and because of my own protection of my own reputation. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out from his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, 
that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now, if you don't mind, let me take a moment and just sort of preach verse 22. Let me bring that into our modern Christian context. God says, it is not for your sake that I am about to act. We could put any name in there, I think. Here it's, O house of Israel. But I think it's fair to say, therefore, not because of you, not for your sake, something you've done, not because of your goodness, O Micah, but I am about to act because of my holy name. The whole point, the whole purpose of God saving sinners, as I keep on saying, is so that we are trophies of grace so that we stand for the glory of his grace through all eternity. We stand in his presence as a demonstration of the goodness, the grace, the kindness, the love, the patience of God, and not because of anything we did that could possibly deserve that. And that's the way God has always, always acted because he's dealing with sinful, depraved people who are dark in their depravity. Oh, all the sons of, all the sons of Adam. All the sons of Adam. Adam's sin is imputed to all of us. We talked about that again last night at men's group, that the imputation from Adam is obvious by the fact that starting at Adam, all men die. And if you want to think you're not part of Adam's posterity, just don't die. It will believe you. And so if God was ever good to anybody, if God is ever gracious to anybody, he's doing it for his own namesake, for his own glory, for his own reputation. As I keep saying, God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And here he declares it plainly. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And again, How did they profane his name? Not by walking around saying, our God's no good. Our God let us down. He says, your very presence among the Gentile nations profanes my name. Because people know you're my people. And here you've been driven out of your land. And they're saying, well, these are the people of Yahweh. These are the people of God. And they've been driven out of their land. So they're able to mock at it. And God says, for that reason, because my name's being profaned, for that reason, I'm going to bring you back to your land and I'm going to reestablish you again. So, so, big theological question for those folks who say, well, God is actually done with Israel or that Israel is somehow subsumed now under the heading of church and that the church is Israel and Israel is the church. 
how exactly is God's name not being profaned if he doesn't actually restore Israel back to their land in the everlasting covenant that he promised them? That's a big theological dilemma for the church replacement folks or anybody who wants to say that God is done with Israel and that now the church is the apple of God's eye and that now he's really paying attention to the church and doesn't care anymore about Israel. But God said he's going to vindicate the greatness of his own name by restoring Israel. So why is he restoring Israel? The people who say God's done with Israel say, well, they broke the law. They broke the covenant. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They were driven out of their land. That's the reason that God is done with them, because they were so bad. God's saying right here, right, you are that bad, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. So God's reputation, God's name, God's authority is all wrapped up in the restoration of Israel. And if he doesn't restore Israel, then his name is continually profaned in the earth because God isn't doing what he said he was going to do. And people try to protect his reputation and his name by saying, well, now it's all spiritually fulfilled in the church. But that's not what God said. Never once in the Bible does God or any of the New Testament authors say that Israel is now spiritually being satisfied and fulfilled and the promises to Israel are being satisfied in the church. It just doesn't exist in the Bible. Instead, what you see are comments like this where God himself says, I'm going to restore Israel because of me. Got it? Yes, yes sir. Well, this is uh, exactly really what you were saying a few minutes ago, implicit in the idea that Israel is being replaced is the idea that God has found a better man. Right. And right there, that whole reasoning is wrong. Or, or they were so bad they can't be saved. Well, they're talking about a different kind of God. Right. They're so bad they can't be saved. My response would be, have you seen Alex? Have you looked in the mirror? Have you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the whole idea, and I think that's it's fundamental to Christianity that we start with the concept of total depravity. We start with the realization that there's no one that does good, no, not one. We start with that so that everything that God does that's positive for us is grace, 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 grace. And yet that same theology doesn't seem to extend backwards to Israel, despite the fact that everywhere that you see God restoring Israel, it's always because of him and his grace. and his, He's consistent all the way through the Bible. But apparently when it's Old Testament and it's Israel, well, that doesn't count. If it's New Testament and it's me, well, then it really matters. So he goes on. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Okay, does that sound like a promise? Yes. What's the promise based on? God's holy name. God is going to do this because of his own reputation. Has it happened yet? Not yet. yet. Does that mean it's not going to happen? No, of course not. 
for I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will, look at this, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a new heart of flesh. What does that sound like? Salvation, redemption, born again. Here's God saying, this is how he's going to save Israel. He's going to do exactly what he did for Josiah. The same way that he interrupted Josiah's life, despite the fact that Josiah didn't have anything to recommend himself, God nevertheless did everything necessary for Josiah's complete redemption and salvation. He did it all himself. He did it in consistency with his own promises that he made to his son and to himself. And Josiah just becomes the gracious recipient of that. But here God says that Israel, national Israel, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. And I'm going to cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. What were they thrown out of the land for? Their filthiness in following idols. So God says, you can't clean yourself up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to clean up Israel. So what does this do? Again, not to harp on it, but what does this do for the idea that God is done with Israel? Because they were so bad. God is done with Israel because they didn't keep his law. God is done with Israel because they did rebel and they were thrown out. Here's God saying, I'm going to restore them, sprinkle clean water on them, and give them a new heart. That's exactly what happened to everybody in this room. Through the blood of Christ, we were cleaned. We were given a new heart. We were born again. Here's God saying to Israel, that's what I'm going to do for you. So if we allow, again, the Bible to just say what it says, you've got to see that God is going to restore Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. See that? My spirit's going to take up residence in you. Isn't that exactly what Jesus promised his disciples when he said the comfort is going to come? If I don't go away, the comforter won't come. When he does, he's going to be with you and he's going to be in you. That's that promise of the Holy Spirit that reaches all the way back here. And who did God first promise it to? Not Jeff. He first promised it to Israel, which is why the first converts were Israelites. God was starting to keep his word. And that is why those Israelites who first believed become the first fruits of all the promises God has made to national Israel because he's also going to gather them, restore them, bring them back to their land Wash them. Give them a new heart. I will pour out my spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. If we read that somewhere in the New Testament... That Jesus said to somebody, 
I will save you from all your uncleanness? Wouldn't that perfectly fit with the New Testament? We'd be fine with that. We'd be good with that. Yes, that's what Jesus came to do. He came and he said, I will save you from all your uncleanness. Except that who did God say that to? Israel. He said it to Israel. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and I will multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you, and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and, produ- and the produce of the field, that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Wow, God even sees famine in Israel as a disgrace among the nations, because it's a demonstration that God is not taking care of his people whom he chose. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. That's repentance. That's what that's. So God says, and by the way, (laughs) theologically notice, it's I'm going to save you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to give you a new heart, my spirit inside you. Then you're going to repent. Okay, well, that would be the theology of the New Testament. That because we have been cleaned up by what Christ has done for us, his complete redemption 2,000 years ago, and then God gives us a new heart to understand these things, and regeneration puts his spirit inside us, and what's the first thing we do? We're driven to repentance. Okay, well, that's what Ezekiel says Israel's going to do. Verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake. Has he ever done it? For any human's sake? Has he ever done it for because somebody was just so worth it? Somebody was just so good. It just wasn't going to be heaven without them. And so he just said, Well, that person's just doing April is doing so well that I've just, I've got to got to get her to heaven for her sake. Because look how good she's doing. Never. It's never been said. There's never been a human being where God ever said, I'm doing this for your sake. God says, I'm not doing this for your sake. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt and the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And then the nations, notice this language, then the nations that are left round about you, Okay, well, this is why I said this is all eschatological. This hasn't happened yet. There's a series of events that have to happen leading to this. There's a time of tribulation such as never was, ever would be again. And then there's a millennial period where Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem. But first there's going to be that cataclysmic war and there's going to be the the Armageddon. All of that's going to happen. And so the language here is, and then there will be some Gentile nations left round about you. And we're going to go look at Zechariah in a minute. He's going to say the same thing. And he's going to start to clarify for us that after the cataclysm that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation, there are then going to be some Gentile nations left, but they're going to have to come to Jerusalem. 
So Ezekiel, in keeping with that, I'm just showing you that God is consistent. God knows what he has planned. God knows what he's going to do. He knows what the future looks like. And his language is so specific that he says, then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and have planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. Do you understand what that means? When everybody had to come in for the feast, they had to bring animals for sacrifices. And so you had these giant flocks everywhere. And God says, that's what it's going to be like in Jerusalem, only it's going to be men instead of the flocks. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they will know that I am the Lord. The very next thing that we read in Ezekiel is the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord, sat me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of dry bones. So God is continuing to teach the same lesson. So when you read the dry bones, when we look at it next week, you have to remember that God has just promised all this, the restoration of Israel. And that the nations that are left are going to have to pay attention to what's happening in Israel, in Jerusalem. Okay, so turn to the book of Zechariah. We've got time. Turn to Zechariah 8. And my plan is, after we finish the book of Ezekiel, I want to go through the book of Esther. Because that's right around the same time frame. It's after Babylon has been conquered by the Persians. And uh, so I want to look at Esther And then after that, I I do want to do Zechariah. But for the moment, we'll look at some Zechariah because Zechariah also, for instance, chapter 7 starts, then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius. Okay, well, that's during the the Persian reign. And so sequentially, we've got to catch up with Zechariah as well. I'm hoping I live long enough to do all the things I have in my head. But if for some reason I don't make it, then Tom's going to teach Zechariah. That's my... Well, anyways. Okay. Starting chapter 8, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Okay, who is Zion? Who is Mount Zion? It's Israel. God says, I am jealous for Zion. And with great wrath, I'm jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Doesn't that sound like what we just read? God is going to populate Jerusalem again with flocks of people. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this is interesting, verse 6. If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people. In other words, he's saying, if the people of Israel and the remnant of Israel can't imagine me doing this. 
because it's been too long, they've been out of their land too long, the cities are unpopulated or desolate. If it seems too difficult in the sight of the people, well, then is it too difficult for me? That's God kind of being a little sarcastic right there. The Lord of hosts said, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to the words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man and any wage for animal. And for him who went out and came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men one against another. But now, verse 11, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord God. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment, for peace is in your gates. Okay, now flip forward a little bit. Same idea, same prophecies, same promises of the restoration of Israel. Go to chapter 12, look at verse 10. Remember that in Ezekiel, we just read that God said, I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to pour my spirit into you. I'm going to give you a new heart. Chapter 12, verse 10 of Zechariah says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. What does that mean? He's going to pour it out on the house of David. Who did David rule over? All of Jerusalem, the collective 12 tribes. But who also is the house of David? The succession of kings leading to Christ. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. I don't have time to get into this, but at the time that he wrote this, crucifixion didn't exist yet. Crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. And yet Zechariah is prophesying that the Messiah, the one they're going to look on, is going to be pierced. And they're going to look on him whom they pierced. By the way, Jesus picks that up during his ministry and says, you're going to look on me <laughs> who you pierced, and you're going to weep over me. And you're going to say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So Jesus gives credibility to Zechariah's promises here. I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. Didn't we see that they were going to abhor their own sins and they were going to hate themselves according to Ezekiel? That's exactly what Zechariah says is going to happen. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Ribbon in the plain of Megiddo and the land will mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and the wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves and the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the Shimeites by themselves and their wives by themselves and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves, they're going to mourn. In other words, there's going to be national mourning about the fact that they've been punished by God all these years for their rebellion against God when God pours out grace and supplication on them. But wait, we're not done. Go forward to chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 9. Actually, in verse 3, it says, The Lord's going to go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. That, I believe, is the Armageddon fight. We'll get into that later when we get into Zechariah. But look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise up and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. In other words, God says, I'm going to level all the land, but Jerusalem is going to be lifted up. Jerusalem will be up on a mountain hill. And the people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Okay, we, we obviously can say that hasn't happened yet. The land hasn't been leveled out yet. Jerusalem isn't at peace yet. But God said he's going to do it. Verse 12, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of another will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. It'll be kind of a scary time. You can kind of see why the Armageddon's a little frightening. Why people say, Armageddon out of here. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> then it will come about that any that are left of all the nations. Okay, what we see in Ezekiel. That of the nations that are left... God is going to deal with them. Here's the way he's going to deal with them. 
then it will come about that any that are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And in that day will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holiness to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Okay, so Ezekiel, Zechariah, they're prophesying the same thing, which is God is truly, genuinely against Mount Seir and against Edom and against the nations that are coming against Israel. And even as Israel is out of their land, God keeps reassuring them, you're coming back. I'm going to put you back in your land, not because of you, but because of me and for my own name's sake. And he says it over and over and over and over again. Now, that is why, not to go too far with this, but that's why I'm totally convinced that there has to be a millennium. I had somebody write to me once and say, what's the point of the thousand years? What's the point of the millennium? Well, there's a lot to do still. Before the new Jerusalem comes, before the new heavens and the new earth, there's a whole lot to do. There's a kingdom that has to be built. And God's going to do it his way. And he's going to do it his way in his time. And he's going to do it in such a way that everybody from Israel to the nations surrounding Israel are going to know that he's the Lord. That he's the Almighty. That he's the one who's been saying for thousands of years he's going to do it. And that he's going to do it. And if he doesn't do it, his namesake, his reputation is at stake. I didn't say it. He did. He said his namesake, he's jealous over his own name and his own reputation. Therefore, he is going to make sure that he accomplishes everything he said he's going to do. Got it? Got it. Does it make sense? Any questions? It seems to me that since the fall, the world has never seen a perfect government, ever. And so, consequently, there are claims by people that if we could just solve this problem, or we could solve that problem, whatever it may be, poverty in general, anything, then people wouldn't act the way they do. Yeah. And yet, we're going to have a thousand years of a perfect government. And at the end of that thousand years, rebellion. we're still going to see how sinful yeah. it can be. Exactly. As soon as the devil's loose for a short season, people line up immediately. Yeah. Oh and for all the people who can't understand what's going on in the Middle East, we have sent dignitary after dignitary after president after president. We have sent people over to the Middle East to try to 
bring about Middle East peace talks and try to bring some kind of lasting peace to the Middle East. Give away land or take some land or whatever. And they can't seem to figure out why they can't bring peace among these people. The Bible says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And as a consequence, what did we read in Ezekiel tonight? That there is an everlasting enmity, an everlasting hatred against Israel. We see it today. You see it everywhere. But it is just further proof that the Bible's true. God knows what he's talking about. God knows what people are like. And so the more that they continue to hate Israel, the more they prove the validity of what the Bible says. So if God could be that right about that much, I'm going to have to go with, well, then he's going to do the rest of the stuff too. And that's why there has to be a thousand years to accomplish that stuff. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.